So Mehdi Hassan of MSNBC is all distraught, extremely distraught over two new polls that came out. New York Times poll, one suggests that Americans believe that Donald Trump is more mentally sharp than Joe Biden. And the other poll says Trump is more likely to bring peace and stability into the world than Biden. And these MSNBC folks, this woke leftist Mehdi Hassan, he he literally tweeted about this. He says, I have no words. I have no words. And he actually claims that under Trump, things were far less stable. And you know his proof? His proof is that Trump assassinated Qasem Soleimani, the terrorist Qasem Soleimani of Iran. So we need to start to recognize how incredibly de- delusional these people are on the left. This man is having a total meltdown. It's like to him, the, these are, this is so obvious to you and me, ABC's here, uh, that uh, Trump is more mentally sharp than, than Biden and Trump is more likely to bring peace and stability to the world. Biden, the warmonger, Biden, under whose watch the world is falling apart and is on fire. But he puts this, he puts out this tweet. He brings down these, uh, he quotes these studies and he says, I have no words. I have no words. And then people responded and said, what are you talking about? I mean, things were so much better under Trump, so much more stable. And Trump is so much sharper. And he writes back, people have amnesia. This Mehdi Hassan writes back. He says, or they want to pretend that Trump did not escalate drone strikes. He brings all this proof about Trump causing all sorts of havoc and mayhem. He says, drone strikes, escalation in Yemen, dropped the mother of all bombs in Afghanistan, bombed Syria, assassinated Soleimani, assassinate Soleimani. This is his proof that Trump brings instability and Trump is a warmonger, assassinate Soleimani, threaten war with North Korea. And he says, some of us keep receipts. He says, I remember, I have amnesia. I, I don't have amnesia, I keep receipts. These people are living on another planet in an alternate universe. He's mentally ill because think about this. This is very fundamental. Trump killing the bad guys. That's what brought peace and stability, killing people like Soleimani, bombing Yemen, bombing the Taliban. That is peace and stability. The radical left equates drone strikes with conflict. They view Trump assassinating the world's number one terror leader and and dropping bombs on al-Qaeda and threatening rocket man. They equate that with like Vladimir Putin and Hamas. Trump is being violent. Trump is unhinged. Trump is the warmonger. Like same thing with police catching criminals. Police catch criminals and they view that as somehow the police are the bad guys. So this is how... Their, their worldview is so distorted. The way you keep the peace, the way you bring peace and stability is by killing Soleimani. That was the most peaceful move that Trump ever did, as opposed to Biden handed the Taliban these rocket launchers and drones and tanks, handed Iran billions of dollars. Obama basically gave Iran, gave Iran uh, an, an entire recipe for a nuclear bomb and for long range ICBM missiles. So they were pacifists, right? Obama and and Biden are considered pacifists, right? It's very stable. Under Obama and Biden, things are very stable for the Ayatollah. And this Mehdi Hassan literally is a political analyst and hosts a show on MSNBC. All right, so the Senate is creating its own funding package for Israel and Ukraine. Of course, they're linking the two. And here's what Republicans have said to Democrats. They say, listen, we'll agree to give you funding for Ukraine, but you have to agree to, 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 to fund border security, to include border funding in this bill. So look, I... I understand this is how the game is played, and they're clearly politicizing this, right? In other words, they already have a bill on the table to fund Israel, so but we know that it's not linked to Ukraine, and even the Republicans in the Senate are not happy about that. Okay, they're politicizing it, so they say it has to be Ukraine and Israel. But now the Republicans are politicizing it even further and holding the process up even longer while Israel is sitting there desperately in need because Republicans say, all right, we'll fund Ukraine, we'll fund Israel, but you have to also include border security funding. Now, I and no nobody, 
Nobody cares more about border security funding than myself. Okay, so I understand that. But you're still politicizing and exploiting this horrific, horrific crisis and attack by making that a bargaining chip in this whole process of just just get the money to Israel, get the money to Israel and put everything else aside. So you want to tell me they're all politicizing it, perhaps, but. They're all guilty. That's They all have basically blood on their hands. And a caller said, listen, Mike Johnson politicized this first because he made it uh, IRS funding. He wanted to take funding away from the IRS in order to pay for this thing. I just want to point out there's a very big difference between what Mike Johnson did and linking it to Ukraine. I, 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 and, and look, you'll tell me, well, I'm nitpicking. I'm, you know, it's not really that big a difference. Mike Johnson politicizing it, too. Perhaps. Again, I'm open to that. I'm not going to sit here and I, I have no strong, strong opinion about that. But, it's a, you know, that's what the callers are telling me is, listen, Mike Johnson, why did he make this dependent on IRS money? He knows the Democrats hate that because Democrats, they love it when the IRS has money because the IRS is using it to, that money literally to hire employees to audit all of us. That's literally what they're doing. And not just audit people who are wealthy. You don't need $87 billion in, in, in funding. Like they, they gave the IRS a fortune of money. And they're hiring thousands and thousands of new new auditors to audit all of us. But um, but fine. So so but, but see, Mike Johnson, it's not about taking money from the IRS. That makes sense. Those two things make sense to be intertwined because Mike Johnson is saying, how are we going to pay for this? Mike Johnson is saying we're borrowing trillions of dollars. Literally, by the way, interest on the national debt has hit over a trillion dollars per year. OK, that has never happened before. We'll get to that. So Mike Johnson is saying, I'm willing to fund Israel funding, but it has to come from somewhere else, existing funds. Now you say to me, well, he's politicizing. He knows the Democrats won't go for it. OK, maybe. But that's very different. Ukraine has no connection inherently to Israel. It's a totally separate issue. Maybe you can make the case that they're similar because they're both somebody being attacked by innocent victims, being attacked by a crazy radical. OK, but bottom line, there's no inherent connection there. But there's an inherent connection. Mike Johnson says, show me where the money's going to come from. He'll tell the Democrats, you want to bring it, take it from somewhere else, you want to take it from Social Security, from Medicare, Medicaid, whatever, but it has to come, you want to take it away from the money we send Guatemala, fine, but it has to come from somewhere. So there is at least a much more inherent, intrinsic connection between the IRS and Israel versus Ukraine and Israel. Um, all right, the third Republican debate is tonight. I'm recording this on Wednesday. Third Republican debate Wednesday night, and they've whittled it down, thankfully, to five candidates now, all competing for runner-up because we know who the winner is already before it even starts. And not the winner of the debate, the winner of the primary. But Nikki Haley's in this mix. Ramaswani is in this mix. Of course, Ron DeSantis. And I believe Governor Chris Christie and Tim Scott. I think those are your five. So Chris Christie is managing to, uh, you know, stay afloat here. And Trump will not be appearing in this debate. Trump seems to be doing okay, by the way. His decision to sit out these debates seems to be just fine because he's still surging in the poll. He's still way, way, way up. He's still crushing and dominating by 40 to 50 points. And meanwhile, you know, the judge who ruled that President Trump committed fraud by inflating the value of his his Mar-a-Lago property, that judge actually committed fraud. And that trial is going on right now. The judge... Uh, ruled that Trump, that Trump inflated his property value, committed fraud, and now the question is, I guess, what the level of liability should be, how much Trump is going to owe for that. But meanwhile, the other, but the other question is, tr- the judge wants wants to actually shut down Trump's business or like take over, have like the government step in and basically remove Trump from being able to run his own business, which he spent a lifetime building and creating and growing. And the judge, when he falsely claimed that Trump inflated the books. 
the 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 judge is the one. And by the way, even if Trump did inflate the books, like we've said many times, everybody does that. It's a victimless crime. The banks not only don't care, the banks are happy because it makes them more money. But the, now people are saying that it turns out there is no actual basis to suggest that Trump did inflate the books and inflated the value of Mar-a-Lago. But the judge did inflate the value or deflate the value of Mar-a-Lago because uh, he was basing his ruling on a false pretense. He, the, the, the judge actually knew that Trump did not inflate the value because the judge in his ruling basically admitted that he's basing it on property tax appraisal. So they're talking about Trump gave a certain market value from Mar-a-Lago to, you know, to get loans from the bank or whatever. Very, very, this stuff happens all day long. And the, 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 the judge said, well, he over, you know, he overestimated the value because it was basing, the judge said, look at the property tax appraisal, the property tax appraisal, when they do an appraisal, how much the value, the, the, the property's worth in order to decide how much to charge the owner, which in this case is Trump, in taxes and property tax, that was much less than the value that Trump estimated for the, the for the market value of Mar-a-Lago. The problem is market value is always, is always undervalued. The tax appraisal is always below the market, the actual market value, always. I mean, everybody knows that. If people all the time will get a certain tax appraisal value and pay property tax, and then they'll sell their house for like twice as much or for 50% higher. So the, the judge who ruled that Trump committed fraud actually committed fraud by uh, putting out this ruling, and even CNN admitted, even CNN admitted that the, the, the property tax assessment, that is a fake metric. I'll quote you from something called Just Facts Daily, J- Judge Arthur Ngoron, Ruled in September. This is ongoing, like I said, but the the initial ruling, and there's no jury here, so the judge, who clearly dislikes Trump and despises Trump, gets to decide this for himself. He ruled that Trump defrauded lenders, who, again, like I said, were begging to be defrauded by inflating the value. And CNN reported, quote, it is widely known that the tax assessor valuation is typically, though not always, less than what a property would command in the open market. CNN reported this in the context of this judge's ruling against Trump and and, and Engoron himself, Engoron, I don't know how you pronounce this, Judge Arthur Engoron said that New York law uh, gives him the authority to cancel Trump's business license and hold Trump liable for fraud, but he had no proof that Trump intentionally inflated the value. But he said he just needs proof that Trump repeatedly conducted business with false and misleading financial information. And Angoran did the same thing, like I said, because Angoran, he actually wrote, generally it's the market value which provides the most reliable valuation for assessment purposes. So he wrote in his own ruling that, listen, I need to find the market value, and then he based it on the tax assessor. By the way, speaking of pronunciation and this judge Angoran, um, a caller said to me that I pronounced Qatar wrong, that it's pronounced Qatar. And I, I, I meant to Google it. I wanted to search it up. I didn't. So I'll, I'll check. You know, you never know with like with foreign language countries. A lot of times, you know, Americans pronounce it the wrong way. I don't mean me. I'm saying in general out there. You listen to, you know, even some Hebrew names that you hear people pronounce and they pronounce it wrong. So Qatar, Qatar, I don't know. I used to pronounce it Qatar. And then I heard some people that I trust pronouncing it Qatar. And I decided maybe it should go to Qatar. I'm going to look into it. So thank you. If anybody happens to know for a fact, Please feel free to get in touch. Speaking of that, uh, welcome to the Akavem Show on VIN News, Yeshiva International, Nucky Radio. Send me an email, josh at vinnews.com, josh at vinnews.com. The, the Guardian has put out new details about how Hamas was able to carry out its attack on Shemini Atzeres on October 7th. It turns out that thousands of terrorists, and we keep, again, when new details emerge uh, about this attack and about the strategy behind it and about how it actually transpired. And the caller left me a voicemail, you know, because we have done deep dives into this. And the caller said, yeah, but the one question, the big glaring question that nobody's been able to answer is, 
Five hours. How did the terrorists have between five and six hours to be able to roam around freely and take control, not just of of kibbutzim and not just of uh, communities, villages, but take control of military bases and literally hours? There should have been a massive military response. There should have been helicopters and air force and who knows what else and and, and busloads and truckloads of uh, of troops coming in to defend. I, ha- I do not have the answer to that. That that is a good question. That that's the one question that I like. I have not been able to. And now it takes time. It takes a couple of hours until people realize the scale of what's going on. They know there's an attack here, an attack there, but the coordination and the thousands and thousands of terrorists that invaded. I can understand that it does take some time until people on the ground start to put the pieces together. Like I said, the communications were very limited because the the Hamas actually bombed communication towers. But somebody said, well, what about just cell phones? And landlines, okay, there aren't that many landlines, but yeah, you would think that it, it would not take five to six hours to have a military response. I don't have an answer to that. But new details that have emerged is that terrorists were not even told uh, uh, what their mission was. Terrorists were trained for months, but they were just trained generically how to fight, you know, how to use the weapons, how to, I don't know, probably bomb walls and stuff like that. But they were not actually informed of the specific mission. They kept this thing so secret. This was not discussed on any kind of radio or any kind of cell phones because Israel, Israel eavesdropped on, on that. Maybe not the radios as much because that stopped, but definitely it was not discussed by phone. And the leaders, they trained them for a generic mission, did not tell them when, did not tell them what. And then right before, literally some of them didn't get their precise orders until 6 a.m. And 6 a.m. was right before they carried out the attack. So you see how coordinated, how well planned, how strategic this was on the part of Hamas. And it shows you, and I'm curious, I think about, all right, well, what could possibly be next? And if not Hamas, Hezbollah or Iran or the Quds, you, you know, you think about if they're willing to be so patient and so so strategic and learn how to stay under the radar for years, literally for years, and pretend like they don't care anymore. They don't care about violence and dupe it, the Israelis into believing that. Again, as I always say, it's to be out of Kodesh Baruch Hu, everything that happens happens for a reason. Called of Rahman Latov, Latov Avad, and it's all beyond Hashem. At the same time, I do not have a problem with trying to understand. Okay, but how did it transpire in real time? How did it actually happen on a Tevedika level? Because Hashem does things. But he generally, as a rule, things happen in a level within Derech HaTeva. And I believe it's important to understand, well, how did it happen and learn the lessons? That's all, I believe, part of our Heshtadlus, in my opinion. Um, but anyway, the, the terrorists, they literally were told at like 4 a.m. to go pray in a mosque, return home, gather weapons, which was prepared, arrive at a certain assembly point. But it wasn't until 6 a.m. that they were given very, very specific orders and there were different units. Different units were given different missions. So they didn't even know the mission of the other units. And again, that makes sense because if they're caught, then they can't give up um, what, what what other terrorists are doing because they don't know. They only know what their specific units are. Like one unit was ordered to attack IDF bases near the border um, and then residents of nearby towns. One unit was given a defense mission to ambush IDF forces as they try to approach the border to respond Another unit given a mission to kidnap civilians and soldiers. And a fourth unit um, was prepared, I guess, to, for the handoff, to actually be there at the border and the handoff when there were civilians being kidnapped and hostages and stuff. And the terrorists had very detailed maps of areas where Israeli forces were deployed and precise in, uh, data on where to go in each place. And, of course, we know they had detailed maps, literally a schematics and military basis. So amazing they had spies. They literally, Gazans went into Israel with these work permits, and they were spying, gathering intel. I mean, Hamas, they had so much knowledge, so much, so many detailed pieces of information and schematics, locations, military bases. It's just, just chilling. 
All right. For some reason, my notes here go back to the GOP debate. Like I said, five candidates, um, Christie, DeSantis, Haley, Ramaswani. We went through this. And, um, yeah, the criteria, okay, 70,000 unique donors uh, and a minimum polling requirement of at least 4% in two national polls or one national and one early state poll, which meets RNC requirements. And the candidates had to sign pledges to eventually support the eventual Republican nominee. Now, this is interesting because Chris Christie had to sign this pledge. And may, some people speculate that's why Trump doesn't want to debate. He doesn't want to sign a pledge that will support whoever the candidate ends up being. Can you imagine Trump supporting Chris Christie? I don't think so. But uh, that's not why Trump's not debating. Trump's not debating because it is beneath him and because he is crushing them. And it would almost be it would be demeaning. It's like, for you know, for somebody at his level to go and sit there on the stage with Christie, who insults him left and right, and with, and with uh, you know, even Vivek. Even Vivek, who's never accomplished anything in politics, again, nothing against any of these candidates, but it's just Trump is just in a whole different stratosphere. Um, okay, now, and Trump has a campaign rally scheduled for Wednesday. By the way, debates on on NBC and the <clears throat> RNC has selected the Republican Jewish Coalition as a partner for the debate. All right, this is funny. Reuters claims to have this bombshell. I'm looking at this Reuters story, and Reuters has a has an exclusive. And the exclusive is, it's laughable, exclusive Reuters scoop. Vladimir Putin will remain in power past 2024. No, you got to be kidding me. Where did Reuters, where, they must have deeply embedded sources within the Putin regime. I mean, uh, of hello, yes, of course Putin is remaining. Putin's been dictator for literally 24, he's on like his fourth term of like a one-term in office tenure. Like like he literally, he's on like the 18th or 20th year of like his four-year term. I remember they did the whole, he did he did a whole shtick about Vladimir Putin where they put, what, uh, Dmitry Medvedev, he had this like, his assistant, Dmitry Medvedev, Putin officially, by the democratic rules of Russia, uh, as per their constitution, which was put into place after the Soviet Union crumbled, he, he, he had like term limits. So it was like one four-year term, then the next four-year term, eight years. And then he could step aside, maybe run again after that. And he, he installed his guy in place. So like he was still in charge, but like there was like the president and the prime minister one one of them was one, one was the other. He he worked it all out. Then he just basically just abolished the Constitution. He literally just, one day, he just dissolved the Constitution and dissolved the Parliament. And by the way, he has an 80% approval rating among Russians. He's the most popular leader on the planet. He's certainly the most popular leader in Russia by far. They all love him there. Now, you're going to say to me, well, of course, they when they answer the poll, when they respond, of course, they, they respond favorably because they're afraid. They, they, they don't want to get, you know, the, whatever the KGB is called nowadays. They don't want to get a knock on the door from the modern day KGB. So, of course, they're going to say, well, I love Putin. Putin's, Putin's the best. If, if they're polled because they're terrified to say otherwise, I don't think so. The impression is Russians actually, they're excited about his invasion of Ukraine. They can't stand America. His propaganda machine, I understand he's evil. You know, you're going to, oh, see, you're like Trump. Now you're saying that Putin's intelligent. You're, you're, you're complimenting Putin. Putin has an incredibly brilliant propaganda machine. He knows exactly, he, he's, his whole, he's a branding, you know, he's an expert in branding, so he knows exactly how to sell himself. He knows how to get Russians to adore him and to just think like, like he's superhuman. They literally view him as superhuman. They have this incredible, incredible, um, 
you know, respect and awe and admiration for Vladimir Putin. I don't believe it's all just fear. He, he, he knows how to work the crowd. He knows how to get them. Now he also suppresses the media and suppresses social media and suppresses the truth. And he's, he's an evil person. I want to be very, very clear here. Vladimir Putin, he's evil. He's vicious. He manipulates. He, he, he tortures. He murders his political opponents. He's, they're doing horrible, horrible, horrible atrocities. And he's guilty of war crimes. He's a war criminal. Vladimir Putin, every bad word you can come up with. That describes Vladimir Putin, but he also knows how to be popular and how to get his people behind, I think. But either way, so back to Reuters over here. So it's like Reuters exclusive. The sun is going to rise in the east tomorrow. You know, not in the west as previously believed. Exclusive Reuters exclusive. The earth is not flat. So let me read you here some some of this Reuters uh, story. Vladimir Putin has decided to run in the March presidential election, which will keep him in power until at least 2030. Um, he, he, he feels that he must steer Russia through the most perilous period in decades, according to six different sources. Six sources, uh, you, anyone's, anyone on the street is, is Vladimir Putin going to stay in power or not? Just ask any, any child. Um, let's see here. One source confirmed that a decision has been made. Putin's advisors were preparing for his participation. Three other sources said the decision to run in the March 2024 election had been taken. Um, the sources spoke to Reuters organization of anonymity due to the sensitivity of Kremlin politics. And one said there's going to be a choreographed hint coming in a few weeks. While many diplomats, spies, and officials have said they expect Putin to stay in power for life, there has until now been no specific confirmation of Putin's plans to uh, campaign for re-election. I don't even think he campaigns. Uh, Putin, who was handed the presidency by Boris Yeltsin on the last day of 1999, has already served as president longer than any other Russian leader since Joseph Stalin, even longer than Brezhnev, who served for 18 years. Dep- diplomats say there's no serious rival who could threaten Putin's chances at the ballot box. <laughs> Should the incumbent run again, the former KGB spy enjoys approval ratings of 80%, and he can count on the support of the state and the state media, you think? And there's almost no mainstream public opposition to his continued rule. Yet Putin faces the most serious set of challenges any Kremlin chief has faced since Gorbachev, who grappled with the crumbling Soviet Union. The war in Ukraine has triggered the biggest confrontation with the West. Please give me a break. Since the 1962 Cuban Missile Crisis and Western sanctions have delivered a shock to the Russian economy. Ru- Putin is filthy rich. He's, he's making so he's the only supplier of oil and natural gas to the entire Europe. And the prices are are sky high now because of his war against Ukraine. Putin has it all arranged where he's getting filthy rich. Russia is filthy rich. Putin's probably the wealthiest man in the world. They're not going to list him on the Forbes 500. He, you know, he, he, it's not like Elon Musk where he's like in charge of a company that, you know, he, he, we have no idea. We have no concept of how incredibly, incredibly wealthy this man is and incredibly powerful. And yeah, of course he's, and, and I love how they talk about, well, he's dealing with a lot of strife and turmoil. No, he's not. If I had to guess, my guess is that this is all scripted, that he invaded Ukraine because he wanted there to be a war, because everybody knows that it's easier to get reelected during a time of war. All right. The Biden administration, they keep moving the goalposts on the number of trucks that are coming into Gaza with supplies, with humanitarian aid. So at first they were begging for 100 trucks a day. And that was the goal. All right. We got to get 100 trucks a day. Then they hinted at more. And then you know, they, they, then it became, well, just 100 trucks. That is grossly insufficient. And that would be fine if they want to send in more trucks, except for one problem, because these trucks are being used as a front. Uh, they're, they're going to the, these supplies are going to Hamas terrorists. Israel's trying to starve out Hamas, and the United States is literally helping them survive. On November 1st, the State Department uh, said, well, potentially we'll have more than 100 trucks. Two days later, it turned into significantly increasing 100. And then blinking on November 4th, 
um, speaking in Amman, Jordan, said 105 trucks a day were not nearly enough. It just keeps changing. And, and by the way, every time they there's, there's a new poll and every time Muslim voters lose confidence in Biden and get dissatisfied with Biden over his support of Israel, the number of trucks sending being sent in goes up, right? So Blinken said it's grossly insufficient. He went from not nearly enough to November 5th, it's grossly insufficient. As Biden's poll numbers among Muslim voters continue to plunge, watch that number keep going up. And of course, they're pushing for a pause. Biden specifically spoke to Bibi Netanyahu, asked for a pause. Netanyahu says, you know, he doesn't talk about a pause because I think a pause to him is silly. Like, what's a pause? An hour, two hours, five hours, 10 hours. Like, what does pause mean? If it's not a ceasefire, then just keep going until, you, until you've done the job. But, um, but Biden asked Netanyahu for a pause and, and, and Netanyahu keeps responding, listen, no ceasefire until the hostages are released. Meanwhile, a major general uh, who served in the IDF for 42 years, Gershon HaKohen, he said it's not possible to monitor what is in these trucks. We're at war. In times of war, there is no true or efficient way to control where the aid goes. But UN Chief Antonio Gutierrez, he um, he says that Israel, they're doing two, their checks, their inspections of these trucks are taking too long and it's not allowing, it's delaying the trucks. He actually wants Israel to lighten up its inspection. And they have to inspect these trucks because they don't know of weapons. Forgetting the fact that the fuel is going right to Hamas leaders, we know it is, but the the uh, you know the, there could be weapons in these trucks. This is how they're going to smuggle them in. And then there's somebody, Colonel Grisha Yakubovich, who worked for the Defense Ministry, and he says that Hamas is, is desperately dependent on fuel. He says that hoarding fuel was all part of Hamas's plans. They, they brought in millions of liters of fuel from Egypt, and the supposed fuel crisis in Gaza is, he says, it's fake news. He says that they pulled the card in the international community, convincing them that they need fuel, but there is no fuel shortage. Hamas has all the fuel. They're just hoarding it and using it for terror and not giving it to the people, not giving it to civilians. Uh, Israeli authorities on October 24th released aerial images of Hamas storage tanks containing at least half a million liters of fuel. And on Wednesday, the IDF last Wednesday shared an intercepted phone call confirming Hamas is stealing fuel from hospitals and from civilians. Uh, the daughter of Douglas Emhoff. Douglas Emhoff is uh, married to Kamala Harris. Douglas Emhoff is Jewish and his daughter, I don't know if she's Jewish. I presume she might be. His daughter, Ella Emhoff, who is Kamala Harris's stepdaughter, she is raising money for Hamas. She posted, it's egregious, she posted an Instagram link to her 315,000 followers to a fundraiser for the Palestinian Children's Relief Fund. And that has raised $8 million, probably more at this point. And you know where that money's going. That money's going to Hamas. Even Congressman Jeff Van Drew of New Jersey, who flipped from Democrat to Republican, he called it abhorrent. Quote, I'm kind of stunned by it. It's disturbing to the maximum degree. He said the humanitarian funds that are sent to Gaza are going to end up in the hands of Hamas. So she is promoting. You have Kamal Harris's stepdaughter promoting to hundreds of thousands of followers the a fundraiser for the Palestinian Children's Relief Fund. It should be called the Palestinian Hamas Relief Fund. All right, a caller said that I misquoted Obama, that I was unfair, or at least I didn't quote Obama's statement in, in its entirety. Um, and look, uh, you know, I, I, it's, uh, let me just share with you what he said. He, you know, I compared Obama, and I'm not saying he said the exact same thing as Antonio Guterres, but it, it, Obama justified, Obama's complicit in the Hamas attack because he gave Iran all those billions. But Obama, and by the way, whatever's happening now, Obama's complicit too, as far as I'm concerned, because he's controlling, calling the shots behind the scenes in the White House. Somebody is, I mean, we know who's not. We know the one person in the country who's not controlling the White House and that's Biden. But uh, the, the, basically, Obama added the words, there is no justification when he was talking about Hamas. Obama issued, made a statement on a podcast that 
justified Hamas. Because if you even mention, very simple, if you talk about how complicated it is, you're trying to say, well, it's not so clear cut that Hamas is wrong and Israel's right. That's what you mean. Why is it complicated? It's the least complicated thing in the world. The bad guys attacked innocent women and children and innocent civilians in a horrific, horrific terror attack. Like nothing could be more simple. Why do you think it's complicated? Next, uh, Obama said that what about Israel's occupation, which is a lie because Israel did not occupy Gaza for almost 20 years. So uh, the, so Obama, what he's doing there is justifying what the caller said. I'll read you the exact quote of Obama. I would play it, but it was like kind of long and drawn out. So well, I'll just quote it for you myself, probably quicker than Obama said it. But the point is that adding the words, there's no justification when you're justifying something. To me, that's pretty weak. I, I, the caller said to me, listen, you got to be honest. He said, you got to be fair. If you're going to quote Obama, quote him fully and let us decide for ourselves. Don't, you know, basically give your own opinion. And that's a fair point. I appreciate the caller's point that don't inject my own opinion. Just read you the quote and you can decide for yourself. So here's what Obama said, quote, what, what Hamas did was horrific. There's no justification for it. And what is also true is that the occupation and what's happening to Palestinians is unbearable. To get to the full truth, you have to admit nobody's hands are clean. All of us are complicit to some degree. As hard as I tried, I have the scars to prove it. But there's a part of me that's still saying, well, was there something else I could have done? So that's end quote. So there's Obama. So what the caller is pointing out is Obama said uh, there's no justification for it. And it's also true that the occupation of what's happening to Palestinians is unbearable. So Gutierrez didn't say there's no justification for it. Obama did. Now, all that tells me is Obama is either more savvy than Gutierrez or Obama. He still needs American support. And Gutierrez doesn't care about American support. So Obama added those words. Adding those words to me is like it's it's so incredibly pitifully weak because you're saying there's justification, but you say, oh, but there's no justification. It's like when you say no offense. It's like you're about to tell somebody how ugly they are, and you say no offense, but you're ugly. Well, I said no offense, so then everything's okay. So that's adding those words, no justification for it, when you're clearly justifying, to me, is disgraceful. And then he said nobody's hands are clean. It's not true. It, it is simply not true. Trump's hands are clean when it comes to this. Israel's hands are clean. So that's that's a lie. And then he says we're all complicit. The only truth, truthful part of that statement is that he's complicit. Because he handed he handed Iran uh, billions and billions of dollars, which they literally used to carry out this attack. All right, interest payments on the national debt has, but I do appreciate the call, and I always want to hear this kind of. And you feel free to disagree. You know, I think I laid it all out there right now. Some of you are saying, "Hey, I agree with Yaakov," and some of you are saying, "Wow, the caller has a good point." You know, what Obama said maybe wasn't as bad as Gutierrez. Interest payments on national debt has skyrocketed over one, it's over one trillion dollars, and it has nearly doubled. That's the most staggering part. Nearly doubled in just one and a half years in nineteen months. Um, one trillion dollars in interest payments a year. One trillion dollars. That's a, I'm guessing it's about a fifth of the federal budget is pay is paying interest payments, and that's insane. I, I you don't have to be an economist. You don't have to be like a, a graduate of some fancy business school to know that paying one trillion dollars, one fifth of your federal budget in interest payments is it, 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 it's unspeakably it's terrifying. It is literally terrifying. Uh, it, it, it's um last year interest costs. Uh, interest payments totaled $879 billion. Previous year was $717 billion. But I believe if you go back to like 2020 or 2019, it was like $400 billion. So that number is shooting up, I mean, out of control. All right, Democrats, as I said, are jumping ship on Biden. This is so much fun. And like I said, the New York Times, they put out this poll now. So now everybody's kind of freaking out. Everybody's having a meltdown about Biden's poll numbers. And David Axelrod, a CNN analyst, former Obama advisor, He's funny. He said, the greatest concern is that Biden's biggest liability is the one thing he cannot change. The one thing that is for sure is the age arrow only points in one direction. And saying that 
you know, yes, Biden can be proud of his accomplishments, but he's got to worry. And Axelrod said that Trump is a dangerous, unhinged demagogue whose brazen disdain for the rules, norms, laws and institutions of democracy should be disqualifying. But the stakes of his calculation are too dramatic to ignore. And what's interesting and, and, and CNN, I heard, you know, I heard somebody on CNN saying, listen, you know, the, the economy, the border, you can fix those things. What they're trying to do is they're trying to make it about Biden's age because they don't want to make it about Democrat policy. So they're kind of deflecting. It's about his age because they're desperate. They're desperate for Biden to step aside. They want Gavin Newsom or they're mentioning Gretchen Whitmer. They're mentioning Cory Booker. They'll take anybody over Biden. They'll take a, literally take a coffee cup with a D on it. I don't think they'll take Ocasio, but wait, what do I know? Maybe some of them would love her. I mean, some of these Democrats are obsessed with Ocasio. But that's the that's the that's the talking point is the narrative is, listen, Biden, uh, this is literally on CNN. Somebody said, listen, you're not voting for Biden at age 81. You're voting for Biden at age 85 because that's how old he's going to be at the end of the term. So what's incredible is like they're throwing Biden under the bus and they're making it about his age. And they're saying the things they're correct. They have it to be correct. But uh, th- their agenda is they think Biden's going to lose. So they desperately want Biden out. And the last person they want is Kamala. Kamala, she's the vice president. She never gets mentioned as one of the potential candidates to replace Joe Biden. So this is fascinating here, watching the left and the media just totally throw Biden under the bus. I mean, they view him as such a massive liability. All right, the Supreme Court is going to hear arguments about whether people guilty of domestic violence should be allowed to own a gun. And I don't even know where I am on this. I'm, I'm, and I'm curious because the Supreme Court is obviously so conservative right now. Zaki Rahimi pulled a gun on a friend of his, a lady in a parking lot, committed domestic violence, shot at a witness who saw them arguing. This was in Texas in 2020. And the, a court issued a protective order forbidding him from possessing firearms. Rahimi ignored the order and went on to threaten somebody else with a gun. He fired an A-15 into the house of one of his narcotics customers. He shot into the air at a drive through restaurant after his friend's credit card was declined. I mean, this man is nuts. So that led to a conviction under a federal law prohibiting people under domestic violence orders from possessing a gun. And the, now the Supreme Court is going to hear arguments on whether or not that law violates the Second Amendment. So the question really is, uh, somebody, it's, it, it, it's, it's U.S. versus Rahimi. And the question is, is it constitutional? And look, is it constitutional that there's a law preventing this man and people like him who are who commit domestic violence and who clearly are dangerous, dangerous to their own family, dangerous to society, preventing them from owning a weapon? Now, to me, I don't know. I don't want this man to own a weapon. I like the law. The Second Amendment, it's like saying, well, how can you put somebody in jail? They have the freedom of assembly. So they have the freedom to gather out on the streets. How do you put somebody in jail? If somebody commits a crime, what they're doing is they're foregoing. If you have a right, uh, you know, a freedom, and then you commit a crime, you go to jail, you for, you're foregoing that freedom. You're saying, listen, I abused that freedom, so now I get put in jail. So you have a freedom to own a gun. That's the Second Amendment. You have the right to bear arms. But if you show that you abuse that, then don't you lose that right? Uh, you know, don't you forfeit that? I don't know. It makes sense to me. So we'll keep an eye. They're hearing arguments now. I guess it takes a few months till they issue a ruling. That's going to do it for today. And we will see you next time.